0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo López, and today I'm joined by Dr. Daniel Bell. He is dean of the School of Political Science and Public Administration at Shandong University in China. He is the author of numerous books, and today we're going to focus on his most recent one, Just Hierarchy, Why Social Hierarchies Matter in China and the Rest of the World. So, Daniel, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you on. Oh, thank you for having me. (laughs) Okay, great. So uh, let's perhaps start with some basic questions. So from a sociological perspective, I guess, what is a hierarchy?
1: Um, Well, from a sociological perspective, we can just say that a hierarchy is a ranking of socially valued goods. Um, I mean, the term is used in science, for example, in biology. Um, But there it has a purely neutral uh, connotation and it doesn't have obviously this connotation that it's socially valued goods. But when we use it in ordinary conversation referring to human things, then it usually refers to a a ranking of socially valued goods. And in English, um, it sounds very pejorative because we immediately start thinking of hierarchies based on race or sex or class or caste which benefit the powerful and penalize uh, the, the weak, or those on the bottom of hierarchies. Of course, in our book we argue against those hierarchies, we think those are bad, unjust forms of hierarchies, but we argue that any modern society needs hierarchies, and we need to clearly distinguish between the morally unjustified forms and the morally justified forms, and the morally justified forms have a different character. Um, they, for example, often benefit those on the bottom of hierarchies. Um, if they only benefit those on top of hierarchies, then they're unjust. But if they, if they have other forms, then perhaps they're morally justified.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. But, I mean, you mentioned, for example, at a certain point there, biology. So can we say in any way that hierarchies are a natural phenomenon? Well, some hierarchies
1: are, are, are natural phenomena. Um, in the, in uh, human um, realms, not necessarily. I mean, in very small-scale societies, um, undeveloped, for example, or else hugely developed, with um, then there might not be a need to have um, hierarchies uh, based on um, income, for example. Um, But when a a society is large-scale, then for purposes of efficiency, it's almost inevitable that there will be some hierarchies in those societies, in any large-scale pluralistic societies.
0: Mm -hmm. And are there different kinds of hierarchies? Can we talk about different kinds or not?
1: Sure. So so the the main distinction is between the ones that are morally justified and the ones that are... Mm -hmm. Unjust, And as mentioned, the ones based on race or sex that benefit the powerful, obviously those are unjust. But beyond that, there are many other forms of hierarchies. Um, as we argue in our book, different kinds of social relations with different kinds of hierarchies, uh, some of which uh, may be morally justified. Um, <clears throat> so in our book, we explore five kinds of different morally justified hierarchies. And basically, here's what we do. We start with relations between intimates, between friends and family members, and then we extend to different kinds of hierarchies in society. We go from intimates to citizens, to international relations, um, to hierarchies between humans and animals, and to hierarchies between humans and machines. So the further and further away from intimacy, and basically the further away you go from intimate relations those, the morally justified hierarchies have different character. That, that's the key uh, I- insight of our book.
0: Mm-hmm. And we will go back to talk a little bit about these different kinds of hierarchies later in the interview. But before that, when we talk about hierarchies, and I think particularly when we're talking about how people from the left in the West uh, think about them, it usually seems that they are rigid but uh, but they can also be flexible right
1: of course so some hierarchies and especially the ones that are unjust tend to be ossified and rigid where they benefit the powerful the powerful don't want to give up power so so therefore they're they're very hard to change um but other morally justified forms of hierarchies often have a more fluid character um where there's change and in fact the change is encouraged and those hierarchies um, tend to be uh, well sometimes they're quite common and and if they have that character they can be morally justified the example we give in our book uh, from the first chapter is hierarchies between intimates now if it's hierarchies between friends uh, they tend to be equal in character right i mean if you're a very close friend and one friend has more power than the other um and that power is kind of systematic it's pretty hard to establish friendship based on equality but if it's a family member and you have different power relations that's a problem if those power relations are fixed and ossified but if they change over time especially if they change rather quickly over time then actually it makes that relation quite colorful sometimes humorous and, and, and more meaningful than hierarchies that are, uh, or that relations that are based on equality
0: all the time. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's another issue, equality. Do hierarchies necessarily promote inequality, or are there hierarchies that promote equality? Um well, if we clearly distinguish between the
1: bad forms of hierarchy and the good forms of hierarchy, I mean, hierarchy by definition means that you have inequalities, mm-hmm. um, then we could focus our energies on eliminating the bad forms of hierarchy and promoting equality in those forms. And then we don't have to focus our energies on the good forms of hierarchy. In fact, we could encourage those forms of inequality. So I think what's helpful for purposes for, the, uh, for egalitarians, Is that it's still important to distinguish between good forms of hierarchy and bad forms of hierarchy so that we can focus our energies on the bad forms of hierarchy and promote equality in those forms and but when it comes to the morally justified forms of hierarchy there's no reason to seek to promote equality in those forms so i think by thinking more clearly about this issue it actually might help the egalitarian cause by allowing us to focus on eliminating or at least reducing the social influence of the bad forms of hierarchy
0: (laughs) So, is role-shifting a good, a good property for hierarchies to have? Is it always good, for example?
1: Um, no. So, the, it's important for certain kinds of hierarchies. Um, okay. Hierarchies based on intimates, as we discuss in the first chapter of our book. Um, <clears throat> if you have relations between hi- intimates where the hierarchies are fixed and the roles don't change, for example, men are powerful women less so and men oppress women and that doesn't change and the roles are fixed then obviously that's unjustified and we need to combat those forms of hierarchies but if we have hierarchies where sometimes the men have power other times the women have power um, and those roles shift often frequently then uh, those those hierarchies are are morally justified but you have different kinds of hierarchies um, For example, in Chapter 3, we look at hierarchies between states, where we have hierarchies between large states and small states, and we argue that those hierarchies can be justified if they're mutually beneficial for both large states and small states. Now those hierarchies are not likely to shift, you know, very substantially, right? I mean, the relation between mm, China and Laos, you know, I mean, it's not likely to shift over time because China is a bigger... Uh, uh, country, and will likely remain so for the foreseeable future, um, so that you won't have dramatic shifting of roles, or even uh, slow shifting of roles, but the hierarchy can still be justified if the relations between the large country and the small country are mutually beneficial.
0: Mm -hmm. In the book you use the concept at a certain point nighttime hierarchies, could you explain it? So
1: within the family again what adds color to relations between uh, family members between intimates uh, between lovers i mean many philosophers in the past have held out uh, the ideal of equality between friends as the most desirable form of relation um, because they're equal in nature but we argue that actually if you have relations between intimates um, and those relations can be hierarchical, but if those hierarchies shift over time, uh, then they can add much of the color uh, and and meaning and humor that makes human relations meaningful. So to make this a bit more concrete, um, when we use daytime versus versus nighttime, of course it's a metaphor, but basically daytime means in our waking hours, when we work, or um, then uh, if the relations are shifting, for example, between um, uh, husband and wife, um, if the roles shift, then those, then, then those hierarchies can be justified. You know, for example, if sometimes um, I have more power uh, than, than my wife when it comes to doing certain things, like deciding where to travel, but in other matters, um, like deciding how to spend money, my wife has more power, and overall those kind of uh, roles balance each other out, then um, those roles are are morally, uh, those hierarchies are morally justified. When we use the term nighttime hierarchy, um, we refer more to relations between intimates, between lovers. Again, if they're fixed over time with one, let's say the man having systematically more power uh, regarding uh, impassionate relations, um, then those hierarchies often are Unjustified and they often spill over into the daytime in, in bad ways. But here we draw on, I mean it, it, on the Kama Sutra for inspiration. Um, it's a very rich text. Um, and basically, you know, the Kama Sutra argues very um, forcefully that relations between intimates, between passionate lovers, the best form, are where they shift over time where sometimes one person has power, another time and another person has power, and those shifts are quite rapid over time and done in an unselfconscious way. That adds to the relation between, to, to the uh, intimacy and, and makes passion more long lasting uh, than if those relations are fixed over time in terms of power or else equal over time with no hierarchies. <laughs>
0: So, in the book, you present a progressive conservative perspective to hierarchies. Uh, What does that mean exactly?
1: Well, it sounds paradoxical, maybe even oxymoronic to the anglophone ear. Um, But in a Chinese context, much of our work is inspired from Chinese tradition and philosophy and, and contemporary China, not only though, but much of it. Um, the, the idea of being progressive, conservative is much more, let's say, natural, uh, a natural sounding. Let's put it that way. Because you know most Chinese view themselves as part of a long tradition, at least 3,000 years of written tradition. And most Chinese intellectuals and reformers derive inspiration from that tradition. They seek to, and they're attached to that tradition. And they seek inspiration from what's good about that tradition, including for thinking about contemporary issues and how to reform what's wrong in contemporary society, seeking inspiration from tradition. In that sense, there's a conservative mindset. The most famous conservative is Confucius himself, 2,500 years ago, who was very critical of his own society, but also he he thought it should be reformed based on an older traditions and practices. But the progressive part, and here we can also go back to confucius himself as mentioned he was very very critical he was a very strong social critic and and here and in that sense he was he was very progressive or in a more contemporary context many chinese intellectuals are also very critical of the contemporary situation and very attached to modern progressive values like equality between men and women uh, anti-racism and also having less class based uh, relations, less power uh, for rich people, those are very progressive issues while at the same time being attached to traditions, some of which are hierarchical in nature. So the real tradition. So the real question is how to reconcile those kind of good hierarchies from the past with modern commitments to progressive causes, some of which are egalitarian in nature. I think in, in the West we have similar ideas but they're buried because there's this kind of simple view of history that... Um, The past is hierarchical in nature, racist, sexist, and to be progressive, we have to shed those hierarchical relations from the past and adopt modern egalitarian norms that point us towards future relations. Um, I think, but on the other hand, we do have, I mean, many Western uh, intellectuals and traditions that are kind of progressive and conservative in orientation as well. I mean, uh, for example, some modern Conservatives, you know, I'm Canadian, but I'm just—I could give this example from the U.S. um, Are very attached to to tradition, uh, or let's say to the Catholic tradition, which, as you know, is very hierarchical in nature, right? They respect the Vatican hierarchy, but on the other hand, they're progressive in the sense that they want the Catholic tradition to become more gender egalitarian, right? So on the one hand, conservative, attached to hierarchical traditions and rituals; on the other hand, progressive. Uh, in the Jewish tradition, you have similar views, where many are attached to hierarchical rituals from the past, but also want more equal gender relations. Um, or for example, another, to, to use a more contemporary example, think of attachment to the symbolic monarchy in the UK. Many people love the Queen, you know, and are deeply saddened by Prince Philip's death, which happened uh, yesterday, right? Um, and they want to preserve the monarchy, which is hierarchical in nature, right? Um, but also, we, it should be reformed so that it doesn't have this kind of racist connotation and the, and the baggage of colonialism, right? So again, this, it's a kind of progressive, conservative orientation. And so our view that if we allow, if we think that the way of making sense of our own moral commitments is more, it, it's taking these progressive, conservative orientations, I think it makes, it's much easier for us to think of the possibility that some hierarchies are bad, but others are morally justified and can and should be made compatible with our modern-day progressive commitments.
0: Mm -hmm. But this progressive conservative mindset, is it commonplace in China? Well, more so now. I mean, in the 20th
1: century, okay, so, well, first of all, prior to the 20th century, it was much more conservative in orientation. Although again, the Confucians had this critical view, which you can argue is a kind of progressive orientation. The 20th century, went to the opposite extreme, where the main tradition, we can call it anti-traditionalism, whereas whether it was Marxists or liberals or anarchists, they blamed China's problems on its hierarchical past. They wanted to get rid of the past and move on to a modern egalitarian future. And that took a very extreme form in the Cultural Revolution, 1966 to 76, which was basically an attempt to It was a bit like the French Revolution, where it was intent to completely get rid of the past, move on to a new egalitarian future. Now, that turned out to be a disaster. And the lesson from that is that the opposite of hierarchy is not equality, it's chaos. I mean, if you try to do away with hierarchy, you're not gonna get equality, you're gonna get a very chaotic uh, society. So now, most Chinese are on the one hand committed to tradition, taking the best of tradition, And are aware that again it's similar to edmund burke in the western tradition right it's much easier to break things than to make things let's respect and sometimes have reverence for tradition including the hierarchical past but while at the same time being committed to modern socialist ideals that point towards a much more egalitarian future that's mainstream in china both at the level of official discourse and also i think at the way that most intellectuals think about uh, their own moral commitments.
0: Mm-hmm. So, what what are some of the most distinct traits of Chinese, uh, of the Chinese hierarchy in comparison, particularly to Western hierarchies?
1: Well, um, there's a, a few, right? One is hierarchies within the family, the value of filial piety, respect for elderly people. That comes from age, from the experience of age. Um, that's still very, very strong tradition in China. And so the idea that adult children need to have respect for their elderly parents and defer to them sometimes in cases of conflict, very, very strongly held view in China. Much less so in the West or Canada. Rhyme from, you know, for example, you know, the idea that. I would need to consult my mother before I get married, which would just be very weird in Canada, but it's still pretty widespread uh, in China. We're not saying that it's in, that uh, elderly parents, sorry, that elderly adult children should unquestionably defer to their uh, elderly parents. I mean, actually that was never a, a view. You should always maintain a critical view, but at least that if certain conditions are in place, the elderly parents still have a sound mind uh, they're compassionate, they have wisdom due to their age, experience in different roles. Then other things being equal, we should defer to them in cases of conflict. Whereas I think in, in places like Canada where I'm from or probably other Western societies, not so much the case. Um, a second chapter in our book is about hierarchy between rulers and citizens. And this is where China, again, there's a very strong tradition. We call it political meritocracy where the political system aims to select and promote rulers with above average ability and virtue, those hierarchies are justified if in fact the rulers serve the people and if there's trust between the rulers and the ruled. Very, very strong ideals in China that are not so widely held in Western societies. In chapter three, we look at hierarchies between countries. And I think in the West, there's often a myth that Relations between countries should be equal. It's kind of, um, we should respect sovereign equality between nations. I mean, in, our, in that chapter we argue, it's important to certain to pay some kind of respect to that tr- uh, value of equality between countries. But we should also recognize that strong, big, powerful, populous countries will have more power. And we need to think about how those hierarchies between big countries and small countries should be morally justified. I think China views itself as a big country. And that sort of language, I think, makes much more sense in in China than in in other countries uh, in the West. I mean, I think there's a lot of hypocrisy in the West. For example, the US is a huge, powerful country. And they should take more responsibility on issues like global warming than small countries like Canada or Portugal. But they think, oh, we're all equal, so we don't have to. I think China would would typically reject that way of thinking. uh, this, as you know, in, in our book, we have two more chapters. The fourth one is on, is on the relation between humans and animals. And again, I think in the Chinese frame of mind, but I think here it's much closer to the mainstream view in the West. I mean, Christianity, for example, you know, it's just assumed that humans are superior than animals. Or have some sort of, there's some sort of hierarchy between humans and animals that's morally justified. You know, and very few would argue that, you know, if you have like a burning house you're gonna, you should rescue a dog rather than a person, right? I mean, in case of conflict, humans matter more. I think that's widely held in both China and the West. Um, but then how to justify those hierarchies? And I think in China and here, I think there's actually quite a bit of overlap in the West. So I think chapter four is more kind of universal in nature. Um, we argue that those hierarchies are justified if the, those who have power, like humans, avoid cruelty when they engage with animals. Um, The fifth chapter, as you know, is relation between humans and advanced machines and intelligent machines. And here, I think we appeal mainly to traditions that are powerful in China. One is the Marxist tradition. Of course, it comes from the West originally, but it's, as you know, it's the official view, more or less in China, that we should move towards a higher form of communism where the advanced machines do the socially necessary work and humans are free to realize their creative talents. A beautiful ideal. I think it still inspires, uh, frankly, the Chinese political system, uh, whereas much less so obviously in Western countries. And that's why now in in China there's a lot of talk about how AI can and should be used for the purpose of freeing humans from socially necessary work. Um, But we need to be absolutely sure that we maintain our dominance over AI. And that's why we need a strong state. In that sense, I think the Chinese of communism is different than Marx's ideal where in an advanced communist society, the state would wither away. I think China now recognizes that there's always a risk that AI could become out of control and could enslave humans. And we, that's one reason why the state will not and should not wither away. Uh, in chapter five, we also look at how the Confucian tradition could think of, could influence the way that we think about AI. And how the ideals of compassion and care, which are so central to the human uh, to the Confucian tradition, could inspire, for example, um, uh, well the lo- the algorithms for self-driving cars. You know, in the West there's a lot of uh, discussion about how what algorithms should inform self-driving cars. Um, in China, you have some of that, but there's also a view that uh, C- Confucian values like civility uh, and, and and humility. And compassion should inform the algorithms for self-driving cars and for other AIs, for example, caring robots for elderly parents.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, So these traits that we find associated with Chinese hierarchy, do they also apply to other... To other Eastern Asian countries, like for example Japan, South Korea, I'm asking you that because uh, in social psychology and sociology and other social sciences, for example, when it comes to certain traits uh, of the of um, the countries from Eastern Asia, like for example, people say that they are more collectivist and. The countries in the West are more individualist. I'm not sure if that would also translate into how their hierarchies are organized and if they would share those traits as well.
1: Uh, that's a great, a great question or comment. Um, I, I, I think, um, as you say, East Asian countries, many like South Korea, uh, Vietnam, and Japan, have strong influence of the confucian tradition i mean it comes from history um, and that influences their social relations today and there's a lot of social scientific evidence that uh, cognitive orientations for example in east asian societies not just in china are more holistic in nature and less uh, individualistic in nature there's a famous experiment um, whereby um, as subjects were asked to look at fish in a tank. And then when you ask, for example, the Americans, they would focus on the fish, whereas the East Asians would focus more on the background, on the plants and so on. So much more so that's a more cognitive orientation, which also influences the way that they think about social relations, including the way that including normative uh, views of how those social relations ought to be structured. So what we say about the family in chapter one, it's inspired by Confucian views, respect for the elderly, very much not just in China, but also would be widely shared in uh, Korea uh, and Vietnam and Japan, for example. Um, What we say about chapter two and the tradition of political meritocracy, less so, because that's really distinctive to China because it assumes a large state. It assumes a continuous tradition of more or less of a political meritocracy informed by a large and complex bureaucracy, which in China has more than 2000 years of history. Other East Asian countries uh, do not have that tradition to nearly the same extent, and obviously they're not as large, so the same considerations wouldn't uh, be in place. Um, so for chapter three again, because we assume a hierarchy between large countries and small countries, so smaller countries like Korea wouldn't necessarily have the same way of thinking about it. Although I think the principle that we articulate, those hierarchies are justified if they benefit both the small and the, power, and the rich, uh, sorry, or the bigger countries. Um, should be in principle indoors. So, for example, in the future East Asian um, um, region, if China becomes the most powerful country, which appears to be very likely, uh, how could its relations be justified, those hierarchical relations be justified vis-a-vis Korea, for example? And we argue in our book only if certain conditions are in place. For example, China would provide mutually beneficial security and economic guarantees to South Korea china would needs to set a much more humane model at home so that the koreans are generally inspired by the chinese model obviously that's not happening now and it's i think thinking towards the future but if those conditions are in place then we could imagine that those hierarchical relations would be endorsed by the koreans as well not just by the chinese Chapter 4 on animals, I think what we say and, uh, is, it applies not just in China, but also in other East Asian countries uh, to pretty much the same extent. Because we draw on Confucian ideas, but we also draw on Taoist and Buddhist ideas, which are also widely held in East Asian countries. Chapter 5 on communism, again, that's maybe more China uh, distinctive, because other countries, like for example Japan and Korea, are not nearly inspired by communist ideals to the same extent, although Vietnam might be. Um, Although we also appeal to the Confucian tradition, which would be widely shared in other East Asian countries too. Mm
0: -hmm. But particularly when it comes to communism, I mean, because this is somewhat of a controversial topic, uh, because, I mean, the way that the economy is organized in China tends more to capitalism, I guess. But, uh, I mean, so in what ways does... Communism mentality gets expressed in in politics in China. Um, Well, in politics,
1: I think there's um, there's still a commitment to moving towards this ideal of communist society where the advanced machines do the socially necessary work, Um, but. You said in the economic realm, it's, still, it's very much a market-oriented society. I mean, that's true to an extent. But on the other hand, when it comes to the key industries, whether they're high technology, the ones that are viewed as key to China's security and survival for the foreseeable future, the government will take a stake in those companies. And if they don't do so formally, they'll do so informally to ensure that those companies uh, serve the public good and help to move towards a society which is closer to the communist ideal. Um, so, I, I th- and there's a sense of a mixture of kind of allowing for market mechanisms for purposes of efficiency at many levels of society and economy. But when it comes to the key industries, uh, the state will take control. We saw this most dramatically over the past uh, few months when um, Alibaba, you know, hugely uh, powerful and successful internet company threatened to become a monopoly and there was a worry that at least from the government's point of view that its uh, monopoly would no longer not just be beneficial in terms of efficiency but would begin to act against the interests of consumers or the people at that point the government basically um, blocked its further development to certain extent and made sure that it would evolve in a a way that is compatible with the long-term good. So I, I in that sense I think the communist ideals still inform economic relations as well.
0: Mm -hmm. I understand. So do you think that uh, Chinese hierarchy or how its hierarchies function play a role in China's international success? Um,
1: Well, okay, so in our book we we imagine a a few decades from now a much more humane and less repressive government in place. And at that point, we tried to think of how those hierarchies would be justified, both at home and abroad. But if you're asking to what extent um, hierarchies explain China's role in the world now, I mean, again, we need to distinguish between good forms and bad forms of hierarchy. The bad forms of hierarchy were, means the powerful countries would just bully the poor and the weak, and um, you do have, unfortunately, some of that where, you know, where, where 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 China just by virtue of its military and economic might um, bullies smaller countries, I think it happens much less than uh, what happened in the West with the history, the ugly history of colonialism and imperialism. Um, but it still happens. Um, but whether the good forms of hierarchy, where China thinks about win-win relations, that is uh, officially the justification for the Belt and Road Initiative, where China wants to promote infrastructure projects in surrounding countries, in Central Asia, for example, that would be mutually beneficial for both China and and those countries. To a certain extent, you have that. Um, But, of course, the critics of the Belt and Road Initiative say that much of it is hypocritical and benefits China, not necessarily people in those other
0: smaller countries. Mm -hmm.
1: Question, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. And do you think that China in the future will become more prosperous than Western countries or at least the ones that now have, uh, I mean, pr- prosperous, not just economically, but maybe in terms of their social indicators, I guess? Um, so that, that's a good question. Like, which social indicators
1: matter? I mean, in terms of just economic prosperity... It's likely that China will become, and on some measures has already become, the most powerful, economically powerful country. But in terms of per capita income, you know, China is still much less. For example, one quarter of the U.S. per capita income. If it'll ever reach the U.S. level, who knows? It'll take decades. Um, but on social indicators, I mean, that's a really interesting question, right? Which social indicators best measure human well-being? Mm-hmm. And um, GDP isn't necessarily the best indicator right i mean if you have a a, a very economically successful country but with environmental disasters huge gap between rich and poor um and fixed kind of uh hierarchies where those who have economic and political power hold on to their power uh, and don't share it uh, then you know it's not necessarily a a morally desirable uh form of wealth right um so i think uh, desirable indicators would would include um well, we can think of it this way, and there's no ind- indicator out there that measures uh, desirable forms of, uh, let's call it, good forms of hierarchy. Uh, but if there's a social indicator that would say that would penalize countries for having bad forms of hierarchy, like racism, sexism, huge gap between rich and poor, or a terrible relation with the environment, where man is on top and nakedly, man meaning human beings, nakedly exploits the environment. Um, and we penalize countries for those, and we reward them for good forms of hierarchy where there's rich and uh, relations between intimates that are constantly changing in roles, where the rulers serve the people, and there's trust between the rulers and the people, where the powerful countries also implement policies that are mutually beneficial for the less powerful countries, where there's relations between humans and animals um, that involve uh, some subordination, but also avoidance of cruelty, and where the machines serve human beings rather than the other way around. If we can have social indicators and measure that, I think uh, that would be very interesting. And if China, Maybe China would do better than other countries, but it's quite speculative. I really don't know. I mean, it's really a very complex empirical question.
0: Mm -hmm. So, I mean, going back to the different kinds of relations you talk about in the book, is it that one is nested inside the other? Like, for example, we start with relations between intimates and then move to relations between citizens and so on. I mean, are, for example, relations uh, between intimates more fundamental than the others? Um,
1: more fundamental, well, maybe more crucial for human well-being and human flourishing in most cases, right? I mean, if you, if you live in a society where, let's say, you have a decent government that provides the goods and where people trust the rulers, um, where there's no naked oppression of smaller countries, where the animals are kind of respected without there being cruelty uh, where advanced machines are not uh, pressing human beings um, but if those in those societies human the human beings lack intimate relations uh, or else those intimate relations are very oppressive um, based on race or sex then that I mean that life would hardly be worth living so in that sense um, I mean I, I, it's a more Confucian thing where the way that Confucians think about, human relations, it's more, usually the language is graded love. There's a kind of hierarchies of love where the most love goes to our intimate relations. And the further way we extend from intimate relations, love is important, but it diminishes in intensity and importance, and the obligations become fewer and fewer. So we have much stronger moral obligations towards intimates because that's the source of love and the source of meaning for most of us. And the further away you move from those intimate relations, um, the less love there is and the less obligations there are. So it's kind of, from a confusion standpoint, it's natural to think that there's different kinds of social obligations based on the nature of the the intimacy, of the social relation. Then that's the kind of framework we use in the book. But it's not so natural in a kind of, let's say, maybe Christian view there, maybe it's a kind of vulgarized form of Christianity where we should treat each other as equals, you know, uh, no matter what kind of relation, uh, or a kind of, even a Buddhist view where uh, we shouldn't let the particular attachments influence the way that we treat people, um, or a kind of Kantian view, you know, that we apply these universal principles uh, to everybody regardless of the kind of social relation. so the ideal of graded love is quite common in China, but maybe less so in countries that don't have this Confucian heritage. But I think it's quite natural for many of us, and even from an evolutionary point of view, right? That you have strongest love towards those that you have most intimate relations with. And to an extent, you have more obligations and responsibilities towards you know your parents and towards your neighbor's parents. I mean, that's not a crazy
0: view, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, I was just thinking that maybe could it be the case that um, relations with intimates and perhaps uh, the family would be something that would be considered by Chinese people as the basic unit of social organization and all the others would stem from there? Or is that not the correct way of thinking about it?
1: No, I I I think that's I think that's true to a certain extent um, that. The family is viewed as, as the fundamental unit of society. And once you have, if you have proper, if you have like um, morally justified, harmonious relations within the family, it's much easier to have harmony outside the family. Um, but there's a certain like crude view of Confucianism that the whole society should be modeled on the family. I don't think that's a view uh, that's... Um, mm, I mean, sometimes the Confucian tradition is very extremely diverse, but at least among the most kind of complex and rich uh, Confucian thinkers, there's a recognition that certain kinds of relations within the family are really distinctive to the family. And once you have, for example, relations in much uh, in more impersonal, um, large-scale societies between rulers and the people, uh, the, the the relations are different in nature, and the rulers. Need to be a bit more impartial the way that they treat citizens. Whereas this value of impartiality might not be so important uh within the family.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was also wondering if that would have some impact on political corruption levels. I mean, I'm not sure if there's lots of corruption or not in China, if it's particularly nepotistic, for example. Sure. So there's a huge problem with corruption in China. Uh, and Um, and to the
1: point that it posed an existential threat to the system at least about 10 or 15 years ago and that's one reason why you have a very strong anti-corruption drive Um, and part of that comes from yes from very strong family relations combined with um, well with salaries for public officials that are quite low so for example if i'm a public official uh, here in my village in shandong province my mother is ill i need to And it costs a lot to get, uh, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, there wasn't, it's a bit better now, but it was very expensive to get decent healthcare. And I had a low salary and somebody offers me a bribe, I'm likely to take it because it helps my mother, you know, so sometimes, um, or helps my child get into a good university through a back door. I mean, so there was that sort of corruption and partly it's because of the very strong family relations. And that goes way back in Chinese history. So that's one reason why Both in Chinese history, imperial history, and in China now, there's a rule called the avoidance rule. So if you're a public official, typically you're not allowed to serve in your own community or your own province because there's an assumption that you'd be more subject to nepotistic and family ties, and it's a way of avoiding corruption. So there's always this tension, uh, and it won't go away, uh, between very strong ties to the family and obligations that public officials have to serve uh, the people in a relatively impartial way.
0: Mm-hmm. Do we have anything equivalent to romantic love in China? Yes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean,
1: not just now, but, uh, it goes way back, you know, in, in, in history, uh, you know, uh, if you, if you look at the poems, um, and the novels, um, is, um, uh, you know, you can argue it's, Almost natural to the for the human condition, Um, but but especially since the revolution, there's an assumption that marriages should be based on romantic love. So I mean, romantic love was always there, but in the past there was a view that marriages should be more something that is uh, pursued for other reasons. You know, among rich people, maybe for property reasons or to maintain to have good ties between different families or whatever Um, but there's an assumption now and you i guess you can argue is learn more from the west that um, marriages now should be based more on 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 romantic love as as an ultimate
0: foundation Mm -hmm. but are marriages still arranged in any way in china um basically no i mean
1: it's quite common for parents to be consulted Um, And sometimes the parents would provide advice, you can marry this or that, but the uh, adult children, so to speak, would have veto power um, in in, in almost all cases, especially in urban areas. Um, I mean, so there might still be arranged marriage in the sense where the parents find the relevant partners and the children have no say or veto power, but that is rare and I think
0: increasingly so in China now. Mm -hmm. So, there are two kinds of relations that are part of relations with intimates that we haven't talked about yet, I think. Uh, What about relations with housekeepers? How do Chinese people think about that? So, um, there, typically, again, there's
1: terrible abuses, you know, where uh, housekeepers, of course, there are unjust hierarchies, where because the housekeepers do it for the money they're often subject to horrible conditions uh, sometimes uh, sexual abuse obviously those are terrible and and need to be exposed and denounced but in the in the better cases um, they're treated almost like family members where family uh, norms and labels are, are, are extended from family members to housekeepers um, as a way of, of showing some compassion and intimacy. Um, that helps to justify those relations. And we argue that at the end of the day, though, um, if there are permanent relations uh, whereby the housekeepers have to do it for the money ultimately, and that's kind of fixed over time, over generations, that's still an unjust relation, even if there's a kind of a lot of compassion, care and family-like treatment. So at least over several generations, there has to be shifting roles um, for those relations to be justified. So, for example, whereby the children of the housekeeper might have more power than the children of the the person who has the housekeeper in the next generation.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, And what about friendships? I mean, where do Chinese people place their friends in relation to other people?
1: Uh, Well, friendship in the Confucian tradition too, in this sense, it's similar to the West. It's really uh, assumed to be the one relation that's ultimately the closest to what an egalitarian relation where you treat a friend as an equal. Maybe what's a bit distinctive um, in China with the Confucian tradition is that they encourage you to select friends who are better than you in some sense, so that you can always learn from them and improve uh, from them, at least better in some ways. So maybe a a kind of a friend would be some uh, a a friend uh, should be somebody who's better than me in certain aspect where I would learn from him or her, Uh, but in other aspect maybe I'm better than that friend and the friend would learn from from him. So so a kind of Confucian take on on friendship is that it's based on relations of equality, but what really makes it valuable too is the idea that a friendship would allow for improvement, especially moral improvement.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, when it comes to the relations people establish with non-human animals, in the book you mentioned the concept of subordination with care. Could you explain it? So, um,
1: the here is something common in most traditions, actually. Almost all major traditions assume, you know, whether it's Confucianism, um, Christianity, I mean, even Buddhism, which treats... Which is, is, says we should be compassionate towards all animals, um, but they still assume that when it comes to reincarnation, there's a kind of hierarchy, you know, and humans are higher than animals. If you want to be reincarnated, it's still better to be reincarnated as a human than as an animal. So most major religious and ethical traditions assume that humans, um, that, sorry, that animals should be sub- subordinate to humans in some sense, um, but it doesn't mean that we can exploit animals or that we can treat them with cruelty. And here again, it's one value that's shared by most ethical and religious traditions that we should avoid cruelty when we treat treat animals, even if we regard them as born in some sense or other. Now that sounds, oh, who's going to disagree with that? But that has really radical implications, for example, when it comes to eating meat, because almost all um, animals now are brought, are the, the, when uh, that are um, uh, made for human consumption are brought up in terrible cruel conditions so if you take this value seriously of avoiding cruelty towards animals, it means that uh, it means avoiding um, eating meat from animals that are brought up in uh, cruel conditions, which is al- in the case in probably ninety percent of you know or more uh, of, of animal farms uh, and factories um, so it's a value that we think should be taken seriously, and we apply it to different things. But that said, we also argue that uh, um, it, there's no, this value of subordination without cruelty, it's a kind of bottom line. But beyond that, if we have particular, more intimate relations with certain animals, then we owe more than just avoiding cruelty. So for example, relations with our pets. Um, it's not just a matter that we should avoid being cruel to them. We have very strong obligations of care, and love which wouldn't apply to let's say you know wolves you know um and and so in in our chapter we also distinguish between different kinds of obligations that we owe to animals depending on uh, our relation with them
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, when it comes to artificial intelligence i mean is there something in chinese philosophy or something like that that would uh, orient people in terms of how they should deal with the possibility of these kinds of systems developing minds? And, for example, does it tell us anything about uh, if we should attribute personhood status to some of these systems in the future?
1: Um, Well, I think for the... It's very interesting that in China there's a bit less worry about... um, uh, advanced machines um, becoming human-like and, and, and almost to the point that they in, endanger humans. I mean, there's less of this uh, science fiction tradition of, you know, Frankenstein-like um, uh, entities. Or, um, uh, that said, um, th- there is a lot of this d- discussion now about AI. And uh, again, to, to repeat, um, from a communist point of view, You know, there's a very strong view that advanced machines are there to serve people, and we should be very, very careful about uh, innovations in AI that threaten this hierarchical relation. If human, if if advanced machines become humans, become equals to humans, and have the same power of same capacity to feel and to suffer and and uh, and to think in, in in kind of of course now they're better than us in many analytical ways, but in a kind of emotional ways as well, um, then uh, there is a very worry that that could threaten this hierarchical relation between uh, humans and machines. And the state, uh, I think in China, there's a view that can and should take a strong role to regulate those dangerous forms of AI. Uh, that's pr- I think you have some of that in the EU. In the US, though, it's much less of a commonly held view. And the Confucian traditions also influence the way that people think about AI. And I could give this example of um, caring robots because one of the things about China now is that because of the one-child-per-family policy, which has been abolished now, now it's um, two-child-per-family, uh, but eventually probably that will be abolished as well. But there'll be many elderly people with, with, without um, sufficient uh, adult children to care for them. So that's why there's a, going to be a need for advanced machines to or care robots to provide for that care Um, now the confucians would encourage that to based on the principle that it could alleviate some of the um, burdens of of, uh, filial piety for example where where an adult child is so tired caring for their elderly parent and performing menial tasks you know doing housework or changing diapers of a very elderly parent. Um, if that could be done by a care robot, that's great if the human being ca- could have more time to show compassion and, and to treat their adult uh, parent in a kind of compassionate uh, way. But if those caring robots become so, um, let, let's say, so, work so well or, or so cute that the uh, adult, uh, that the elderly parents become more attached to those caring robots than to, those, uh, than to their own children, then we uh, Confusions would worry about that. So that's why it sounds a bit strange, but we argue against the need, we argue that there's a strong need to regulate, uh, to prevent overly cute uh, care robots from, having, um, from undermining the love between uh, uh, adult children and their elderly parents. So, in other words, I mean, again, it sounds strange, but we think that there's a good case for regulating
0: against overly cute, caring robots. Mm -hmm. So, just one final question. Do you think that any of these aspects coming from Chinese philosophy and particularly the ways that people in China think about hierarchies, uh, some of their positive aspects could be adopted by people in the West do you think that they would in any way uh, or that they could in any way translate directly into um, Western hierarchies
1: well I I think it's a very good question Uh, there's several things blocking it one is um, the the term hierarchy in English is so pejorative that it's hard it's hard to just get beyond that blockage of let's distinguish between the good forms of hierarchy and the bad forms. Um, In in Chinese, there's the word "dangji." It's also pejorative and refers more to the bad hierarchies where uh, those with power oppress the weak, Um, but there's a very richer language which allows us to express the idea of morally desirable forms of hierarchy. So we need to have a, a, maybe sometimes invent new terms um, that allows us for this more intuitive distinction between the good and the, ju- and, and the bad forms of hierarchy. We also have to just get rid of this idea that social progress means just getting rid of the past, of the hierarchical past, and moving towards an egalitarian future. I mean, it's such a simple-minded view. And that's why, to the extent that there's progressive conservative orientations in the West as well, as mentioned, you know, reform-minded Catholics or Jews or, symbol- or s- those defenders of symbolic monarchy who are against um racism uh to the extent there's progressive conservatives um uh, that orientation can become more popular in the west i think um that might allow for more openness uh for not just learning from china but also for thinking about how to have um good forms of hierarchy in western societies as well how to promote them and stamp out the bad forms i think it's the best way to move towards a to just society
0: Right. Okay. So the book is, again, just hierarchy, how social hierarchies matter in China and the rest of the world. Just before we go, would you like to mention any places on the Internet where people can find your work?
1: Um, Well, there's the most famous uh, company, which distributes book, I don't think I need to do an ad for them. Uh, The book is available on that uh, company uh, owned by, I guess, the richest man in the world now, or at least maybe the second richest, but anyway. um, But um, I have a a, a website, um, danielabell.com, where I have not just my books listed, but recent articles and videos and so on. Um, And my book is co-authored by a professor at Fudan called Wang Pei. Um, She writes mainly in Chinese, um, but um, the ideas come from both of us, so um, I I would suggest looking at her work as well.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I will be leaving links to that in the description box of the interview. And Daniel, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for taking the time to come on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for your uh, informative and pressing questions. Hello everybody, thank you for watching this interview until the end. So it is thanks to people like you that the show has been running for such a long time, more than three years now, and I would like to ask you to please pay a visit to my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there. If you prefer PayPal, you can also find links to it in the description box of the interview. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share the interview, leave a like, hit the subscription button, and comment on it. This show is brought to you by Nlights, the learning and development done differently. Check their website at nlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and Paypal supporters, Kenin Litska and Blanchet Perga, Larson Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, and Frederick Sunda, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Castle. Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whiting, Bernardo Wolf, Tim Hollis, Henrik Allenius, John Connors, Paulina Barron. Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Muller, Herbert Guinties, Rutger Bosbo, Weingart, Becker, Newberger Goldstein, Dan Demetri, Robert Windegger, Rui Nácio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Thomas Trumbull, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Columbus, Jorge Spinha, Phil Kavanagh, Corey Clark, Mark Life, Roberto Inguanzo, Michael Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Ugni, Alexander Denbauer, Omari Hickson, Fergal Cusson, Yevan Bodrenko, Al Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Leibrand, Oslan Bulut, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T., Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W., Joan Weyra, Tom Hummel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Ades Araujo, Eden Roman Romain Roach, Dmitry Grigoriev, Diego Londoño Correa, Tom Roffia, Nick Punter, Adana Ruzmani, Charlotte Blizz, Mirren B., Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostasebski, Max Belby, Nelek Back, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Al Ortiz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Allman, my producers, Isar Webb, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafiniak, Ian Gilligan, Sergio Codriano, Luis Caetano, Tom Venegdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Gidi, Sardis France, and Nero Balachandran, and my executive producers, Michel Rogieschi, Rosie, James Pratt, and Matthew Lavender. Thank you for all.